This is The Cable. Big bid on 10-year treasuries over the last week. Tech story is front and centre. A lot of people are saying, no, thank you, step back. You're saying, get in, why? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. The dollar a little bit stronger today. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable. An historic moment from which there can be no turning. Back. With Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon, good afternoon to the City of London. You are listening to The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. This is Bloomberg Radio. At the close today, the FTSE 100 positive a third of 1%. On the S&P 500, we inch just a little bit higher. A lot of people talking about the big moves beneath the surface in the equity market. Sure, it's interesting, but the catalyst for everything, I think. In the driving seat, the bond market. Treasuries, what a move. Yields up another 10% basis points on a 10-year to around about 188. That's your yield right now, 1.876% on a 10-year. 10 days ago, your intraday low for the year, about 143. This is a huge move, Guy, and it continues. It does continue. And as you say, you're absolutely right. Um, This is behind pretty much everything. You take a look at what's happening in the European equity markets at the moment. The big bomb proxy names uh, like Nestle um, are selling off. And they are heavyweights, and they are acting as a big drag to the market. But the cyclicals are catching a bid. The banks are certainly catching a bid. The, uh, the mining stocks uh, were trading higher today in London. That's the story. The market is rotating away from what appears to have been a very extreme <laughs> position in August. Um, it, is, it is being driven by the bond market. You've seen a decent move today, today higher in the pound. So there are some kind of other stories out there as well. Um, I know you probably don't want to talk about it, but Brexit is, is definitely a factor, and the pound's had a pretty strong day. But everything basically comes down to the bond market. The German 10-year was trading negative 70, uh, plus it's now trading negative uh, 45. That is a huge It's a monster move. move. It's a monster move. The mood music around trade feels a little bit better, especially relative to the chaos of three weeks ago. We had the reports yesterday from our team here at Bloomberg that the President of the United States, the administration, was possibly looking into an interim deal with the Chinese. A source spoke to CNBC, pushed back against that. A lot of debate about which side to take on the whole issue. Then the President cleared it up for everyone. The President of the United States saying he was open to an interim deal. So, Guy, we have to try and understand what is underpinning this move, whether it's a correction in the context of a massive move through 2019 or whether it's something more sustainable. If you believe it's something more sustainable, what underpins that? And to what degree is it just about trade? it, It is about trade. But you look at the data over the last few days as well, John. And they have been strong. Like the U.S. inflation print uh, was good. You've seen what's happened with the retail sales numbers. The labor market looks really solid at the moment. I, if you were to step back from the U.S. economy, and I know you often talk about kind of looking th- at things from sort of 30,000 feet or whether you came down from Mars, if you look to the U.S. economy right now, it looks in great shape. The only area of weakness is the manufacturing sector. But at the moment, everything else seems immune. So I think you're right. I think the trade narrative has improved. And that certainly is a factor. And look, people are terrified of a missing out or being caught out by a trade related yield bounce slash equity market bounce. But the data are, are, are there as well. And the data, the yeah. data generally look pretty solid. There is a gentleman next to me clearing his throat that you might be able to hear. I, I could just, I'm waiting for him to jump itching, in. Itching to jump in. I just think that's him trying to tell us to shut up so he can jump in. Cameron Kreiss is with us. Hello, Cameron. Oh, hey, guys. What are your thoughts? I think uh, at the nadir in yields um, at the end of last month, beginning of this month, it was beyond absurd. 
Uh, and what we're seeing is, to some extent, um, a correction of that. Uh, I know it's a great talking point that yields have bounced whatever it is, 45 basis points off of the lows uh, that we observed beginning of this month. But we're still on the 10-year in the U.S., something like 18 basis points below the levels that we closed July. So uh, as ferocious as this rise in yields has been, it's actually been less ferocious than the decline in yields that we observed last month. So some context, I think, is in order. Um, And I think to some extent what's been driving this has been a recalibration of Fed expectations. Uh, We've kind of now coalesced around two more rate cuts for uh, f- through the end of the year, one next month and one presumably in uh, in December. So you've kind of taken the end of October out of the uh, out of the equation. And does that make sense with the stock market basically at the ding dong highs and core inflation in the United States at its highest level in 11 years? Well, I don't think you would get much pushback on that. So, so what happens next? Do we? Do you think we have? I, we we haven't fully unwound the move. Is there more still to come? Do you think the Fed narrative is going to change? Well, we'll know that next week, right? Um, it, and it, it's going to be very interesting to see what the Fed does with the forward guidance, because from my perspective, forward guidance is the is the central bank tool um, at at the moment. So we get the summary of economic projections. Next week as well, I with believe the, we'll have the dot plot. Wretched Dots. dot plot. Um, oh, Pharaoh's just had a shocker. His microphone has uh, <laughs> fallen off, so he's now holding it in his hand like a, like a stand-up comedian. I think it still works. It does still I, work. It does. He is a stand-up comedian. What are you talking oh, about? Oh, boom, boom. I'll, I'll fix this. Um, he's gone all, uh, all handyman, DIY. There we go. Um, um, but for those of you not privy to the to the site of this, this being, of course, radio. Um, yes. After what? what if, <laughs> did, didn't, didn't I catch what, it? What's going can we just, for the, for the benefit yeah. of the listeners, I did catch the mic. It was very, very good reflexes. Um, so the issue, I think, is going to be how do the, do the dot plots um, shift lower? I mean, I guess it seems inevitable that, uh, that they will. But it, I think it's worth observing that the long bond, since the introduction of the dot plot, has never really traded in yield sustainably above that long-term dot. So if and as that long-term dot moves lower, that kind of represents a cap on, uh, on, on yields. And um, it's ironic, given that the Fed themselves moan, or at least some cohorts on the, uh, on the FOMC moan about the flattening of the yield curve and the reduction in term premia. I think you can make a pretty good argument that they themselves are culpable for this. If they are saying that rates are never going to go up beyond 2% or 2.25%, right now they're saying 25 is the sort of sustainable level, well, A, why should you, you know, if you're concerned about a, uh, an economic deceleration, then it kind of makes sense to buy any bond with any yield even remotely resembling that level. Uh, and B, given that they are providing this, on, this, this sort of um, more certainty, than you've traditionally had over the over the span of many many years, that would be a good argument why this the quote unquote term premia uh, have have gone down. Although I think even that's sort of overblown because if you look at ten year OIS for example, which is <clears throat> you know a swap that lets you bet on the average short term interest rate level uh, literally every day for the uh, for the next ten years. I'm going to pull it up 
uh, now. It's, uh, oh, and of course I pulled up the wrong thing. Um, this is great radio. Yeah, yes. Well, anyway, it, it's way, way below the, the ten-year, uh, you know, the ten-year treasury yield. Um, so, yeah. You know, listen, I, I think everyone says, "Well, you can never tell a bubble in real time." Well, it looks to me. I mean, the, the price accident we observed. You think this is the bursting of the duration bubble? Well, of the last few months. I mean, certainly the last the last couple of months. Yeah. Um, I think how it, high, what would happen if we got a trade deal, even an interim trade deal? Where do you think yields would go in that kind of environment? Like how much pent up kind of upside could there be here, downside for prices? Well, in in terms of um, the ten year, then that's when you resort to to you know, looking at your charts as a sort of a technical guide. Um, somewhere just shy of two twenty would make sense as a, as a wow. sort of a technical level because we in through June and July we basically traded from two twenty. From excuse me, from two percent to two twenty. So that was a uh, when you have a sort of sideways price action like that, it kind of tells you were you were in short term equilibrium. So it makes sense to at least retest that equilibrium. Should we talk about the ECB next, guys? Still very contentious. Could not believe that Benoit Curé was one of those in the governing council on the executive board pushing back against QE. Reportedly, we'll talk about that next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You are listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. John Farrow is over in New York. I'm Guy Johnson here in London. The big story over the last 24 hours when it comes to central banking has definitely been the ECB. Now, yesterday we got the decision and we got the details of the QE program, uh, etc., etc. Press conference was interesting. Today... Today, things have got much more personal. You've had a whole series of kind of leaks and comments and newspaper articles. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Kind Pictures of, of Draghi, Count Draghi. Did you see? Yeah, the, uh, that, you and I are, are, are of clearly one mind. The first place I went this morning to look was built. Unbelievable. Really quite amazing. Um, so the, so the, top, the, sort of the top above the fold, this is, a, this is the website, was on Brexit. And then below that was this picture of Draghi with vampire fangs, um, all sort of coloured in in slightly sort of purplish. But he'd be basically, he's kind of sucking um, money Suck, out of Sucking the bank accounts dry, yeah. apparently. I mean, the irony of all of this is that if the German economy were stronger and it was exporting some of that to growth this. to the rest of Europe, we wouldn't be doing this. Yep. But nevertheless, John, I, we, we've had this amazing kind of dispersion uh, of views, and I find it fascinating. So Holtzman's out there. He's the new Austrian. Weidman's been out this afternoon uh, basically trying to, trying to throw Draghi under the bus. Um, Curry, as you mentioned, I, there's been kind of all kinds of different kind of stories doing the rounds. I don't know. Uh, Christine Lagarde's basically got to pick up all the pieces. Yeah, that's why I think this matters. So I had yeah. an editorial meeting yesterday with my team, and I said, you know, give it a couple of hours, ECB meeting's done, then we'll start to see how much consensus there actually was and the dissent starts to come out. This happens every single meeting. You don't really need the crystal ball for it. What was interesting was the scale of the dissent. The composition of the dissent wasn't just the governing council, also the executive board, wasn't just Sabine Lautenschlag, it was also Benoit Corey. Why does it matter? Corey leaves at the end of the year. I'll tell you why it matters. This is a lot of dissent and a lot of pushback to QE. For QE to be open-ended in more than just name, 
there needs to be a belief that this ECB can commit to 20 billion every single month for a long, no long way. time. Yeah. Now, now to believe they can, mit, can commit to that, you need to go one step further than actually restarting the program. You need to believe that at some point they can adjust the parameters of the program. Or Germany is going to issue more debt, a lot more debt. Yeah, and I just see things at the moment as being really difficult for Christine Lagarde when she comes on board. It's going to be primarily the same governing council that she's got to try and go one step further potentially, either get the Germans to issue more debt, as you say, which I think is going to be really difficult, or change the issuer limits, widen the pool of available assets, and given the resistance that Draghi had just to restarting the programme... It's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. And I just wonder, Cameron, to what degree there is belief that this programme truly is open-ended. For that to be powerful, you need to believe that they're able to to carry through, to follow through on it. Yeah, and we'll know that in the fullness of time. I mean, it's only, what, six months or so before they're going to bang up against some of the limits uh, on German debt. But going back to the dissent that has emerged subsequent, uh, I think reading between the lines and taking out my sort of pocket Freud um, psychoanalysis book, he said Draghi made very clear that there wasn't a vote. Um, and it seems as if perhaps the reason there wasn't a vote is because, you know, don't ask a question you don't want to know the answer to. He might, you know, maybe he would have gotten voted down. And if you oppose this and you feel like you didn't actually have a literal influence in making the decision through through a vote, of course you're irritated. Of well, course I, you're well, I will say it. Holtzman said he was going to be reversed. I think in, in his mind, it, just looking at things as they stack up, there's the 19 national central bank governors – then there's the executive board on top of that. And I imagine he was probably looking around the room. And I imagine if you believed, if you were one of the dissenting voices, and we'll continue this conversation because we're almost out of time, Guy. But if you were a dissenting voice and you believed the vote mattered, then you would have called for the vote. And, of course, the way they do these meetings now is that some individuals don't get the vote. So the Bank of France governor, for instance, wouldn't have had a vote at this meeting. The executive board always gets the vote. So I imagine he looked around the table and believed that the consensus was broad enough of the voters that were there that they didn't need a vote. But that was his way in the governing council in the meeting at the news conference of just papering over the cracks. And those cracks emerged pretty quickly. We'll continue this conversation. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. Imagine if you lent your buddy two billion. He had a nice big house and told you it was worth 47 and it'll pay you back at the end of the year. Then about, I don't know, nine months later, you find out his house is only worth maybe $10 billion. Um, It's kind of what's happened to SoftBank and WeWork, Guy. (laughs) Unbelievable. The latest headline coming from Reuters is that WeWork may only be coming to market looking for a 10 billion dollar valuation at some point bank came in with two at a 47 billion valuation earlier this year uh there's a definite soft bank problem here which is kind of uber related as well um which which is not going well um i we're, we're in a situation where basically we're finding where demand is and why do we know that that tends kind of where it is is it going to be lower? Than, how much have how much have SoftBank put in? I think it's ten point five billion. Um, so so the fact that we're sub ten is is also pretty dramatic just from that point of view. Um, but where is the demand? I we are basically testing the bottom ends of the limits. 
you, is this one of these kind of situations where it would be better not to come to market, but then you find yourselves in the situation like they've got to raise what three billion? I this this is getting really messy really quickly. You need and a I good don't, story. And I don't know what SoftBank are going to do about it. As you know, Guy, and we talk about SoftBank more broadly in Cameron at the moment. But when you come to market. You're going to be loss-making. I mean, that's not a surprise. You're, you're no. a company that's been in the public market for a little while. You're becoming in a private market. You're coming public. Okay, you're making losses. Show me the growth. Show me the story. Many people are focusing on this governance issue. And even if they address the governance issue, I, I'm not sure that people are in love with the business yeah. model. I'm not sure they are either. I think that's the fundamental problem. I think governance is, is, is kind of the icing on the cake. But that is relatively easy to fix. Um, and yet we still find ourselves in the situation where you haven't found the demand yet. Well, I think ultimately isn't the story that if you sell a dollar for 95 cents or a pound for 95p, uh, it's very easy to grow revenues and that sure. looks that looks impressive, but it's yeah. very it's pretty pretty difficult to turn a profit doing that. And if you look at the businesses that have made that their model, you've kind of got your Teslas, your Ubers, your Lyfts, your Slacks. Um, Tesla is a bit of a special case because they're changing the world, and we're all going to have ride on yeah, and unicorn. Yeah, at the beginning. Yeah, we're all going to ride on unicorn economies ponies. Economies of scale as you generate more yeah, growth. He's sending a car the Nurburgring, I see. So of that's course. great. But look at Uber, Lyft, and uh, Slack. Look at the performance of those stocks. It's brutal. It's horrible. And I think what we're seeing with WeWork is sort of reflecting a. A growing WeWork's the, WeWork's the worst of them, isn't it? Well, I think Essentially. so. I think so. There's something very specific about WeWork and the business yeah. model, though, that they have these long-term liabilities and these short-term assets, and it sounds familiar, I know. And then you think about this company it has been able to grow so quickly that now we have the biggest private occupier of office space in D.C., Manhattan, and London is now this single entity. Yeah, this is terrifying. It, and I was, I was asking a question earlier this, earlier this week. Sam Zhao... Um, billionaire real estate investor was on CNBC, I think, in the last week. And he said that the, I think he said the commercial real estate market in the United States committed suicide. It's brutal. By, by getting involved in this company. I mean, this sounds crazy. I mean, it's Covenants not, it, it's not are, too big to fail because I don't think anyone's going to come in and see it that way. But it feels well, that way when you think about the specific area of well, the world, you know, the, in, the, of the market. The, um, the locus of pain would be felt by people who have money in, in the WeWork business, and then the uh, the ultimate owners of the buildings that you know that have the lease. The, the as, covenants as an asset, are right? so light. The covenants are unbelievable. So I think I, the property owners are, could feel it really quickly, um, and they've also been as part of part of some of these leases. They've been charged with refitting. The, the 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 properties for WeWork, um, unbelievable, Un- and they're just they are everywhere. Well, of course, this this Absolutely business model everywhere. kind of made sense when you had these big, big real estate managers that would lease out all this office space and had these small pockets of office space that weren't great for large companies, and it was almost like excess capacity. Cameron, when when you first start the business, that business model kind of makes sense. This is the stuff that no one else wanted. Then all of a sudden, we just went all in on this concept. Yeah, but isn't there a business that already does this? Doesn't Regus or however you pronounce it? So a lot of the other companies that got involved in this have started doing their own version of it in a a much bigger way. But they were doing this 
20 yeah, years? Yeah, yeah. 20 years? It's not cool well, that's, anymore, Why yeah. is this a tech company? No one really knows. I mean, what's no, the tech aspect tech of this? Company. It's not yeah. a tech company at all. Yeah, but it's full of young people with dodgy beards. And, so and, soft, so and SoftBank throwing money at yeah. it. So I guess it makes it a tech company. I mean, it's, I mean I'm, I'm, I'm very but this is But this has always been the thing. If you put it on a property multiple, it is worth X. If you put it on a tech pro- multiple, it's worth X times a thousand and this is the fundamental problem here isn't it that that we have tried to value this business in as something that it is not i think and now that and now we're coming home to to realize well it's actually comparing it to hertz that was the best comparison (laughs) that i'd had it's more like hertz than it is a tech company well except i think hertz makes money don't they well, they've had a little bit of a dodgy time over the last couple of years, well, okay, but they're doing yeah, okay fine. now. Yes, yeah, yes, fine. Yes. But you know, it, if it, you look it, at the, it, is a viable business. If you look at the financials, it's a viable business. Yeah, you know, if you look at the financials, it doesn't look like a bricks and mortar business because bricks and mortar businesses ostensibly have to make some money relatively quickly to att- you know to obtain all of this. Uh, so let's wrap this up. We skip capital. the ECB, and that's totally fine. The stigma attached to this company now, Cameron. How difficult does it make it to still come to market, even with the governance changes? Just the stigma alone. Well, I, I would agree with you. I think the governance changes. You know, that's like saying you've got. You know, no you, one in my family is going to be on the board. That's you've, reassuring. You, you've Thanks. broken your femur, and someone gives you a band aid for the blister on your on your thumb. And here you go. You know, your boo boo is better. Okay, fine, but you've kind of you've missed the elephant in the room here in terms of what's what's causing pain. Um, listen, I, I just go back to. There is an environment where making money doesn't matter and a story does. This isn't that environment, um, which I think you can see with the Ubers and the Lyfts and the, and the Slacks of the world. It's kind of positive, isn't it, Guy? The I think it is positive. The, I, think, the froth, I think this is, this is validation markets, of, of, of public markets. Um, in a world where we are increasingly going private, I think this is a validation of, of the fact that the public markets do have a role to play. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and amen to that. This, this is Bloomberg. Bloomberg. Cameron, we have can. a great weekend. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You are listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio in the London area and around the world on all of your Bloomberg devices. I'm Guy Johnson in London. My colleague, John Farrow, over in New York. Quick check on where we are with the markets. S&P. Absolutely flat stateside. Uh, 3,009. We just turned negative on the session. Uh, US equity markets, everybody's very excited about fresh record highs. Doesn't feel like we're going to get there just yet. But the bigger movements are are certainly happening in the bond market. Uh, And on both sides of the Atlantic, we've seen the reaction to this. So what we've had today is, and what we're getting right now, is a 10 basis point move to the upside on the US 10-year. So prices lower. Gilts. 8.9%. 8.9%. Uh, over in Germany, 67 And this is having a ripple effect into the equity markets because what you're seeing is the big bond proxy names like Nestle and Novartis, uh, the drug sector, uh, the healthcare sector, the food and beverage sector selling off. The bond proxies are under pressure once again. So the rotation is definitely driven by what is happening in the bond market. Uh, in terms of where cable has been today, the British pound, we should talk about this uh, on this programme, uh, we are currently trading at 124.74. We're trading at session highs Wow! right now, John Ferrer. So the pound goes from strength to strength. We broke 120 last Tuesday, didn't we? Yep. Was it last Monday, last no, Tuesday? No, I think it was earlier, uh, Monday or Tuesday, yeah. Big move. Um, so, so a big move to the upside. Based on kind of... Um, 
a hope and a prayer at this point that Brexit, hard Brexit, is not being delivered. I, I, st- I still think the picture is far too muddled to make an accurate assessment of what is going to happen. Boris Johnson seems to be forced into a series of callers, but I can't quite figure out if he wants to be there or not. Yeah, there are th- a couple of occasions this week where I've said the following line. I think it was Kenneth Galbraith, the economist, Canadian economist, I think, who said that there are two types of forecasters, those who don't know and those who don't know they don't know. And that captures two stories, the trade story and Brexit. And if we've learned anything from Brexit, guy forecasting what is about to happen next is totally yeah. and utterly pointless. There was another quote that I saw this week, which was basically, if you're going to forecast, forecast often. Because things seem to be changing pretty quickly. Yes. Um, and, and you're right. I think Brexit and the trade narrative feel very similar. And, and they've got a, a lot of people involved, and particularly two people involved, who are very hard to read, I think. Very, very hard to read. In and the deliberately and so the as well. Minister. I mean, that's yeah. part of the whole... That's Stick. part of the whole shtick, to be deliberately un- un- unpredictable. But it makes it hard for the markets to, to get their arms around it. And this is why we're kind of getting these swings, I think. Like it was doom and depression last month. Mood music's just better. Like just, uh, the, the yeah. moving treasuries. But the data, but the data as well is just... Well, the data's just consistent. It's not well, turning it's, it's, lower it, in the way that people no, thought it's not. it would. It's okay, just the so that's same maybe true. story. It's just the same story. And it's just pounding people around the head that, yes, manufacturing is rubbish, but maybe it's not getting worse. And then it's, yes, but everything else is still okay Pretty and it's good. not changing. And if we you're just not Germany, com- it's all right. Compared to where we are now three Fridays ago where it was total chaos on Twitter between the president and China and what was about to happen in tariffs and going into the G7. And let's think about where all this started. A phantom phone call with the Chinese providing an off-ramp for Chinese officials and US officials to de-escalate the whole thing. That's where this has all come from, a phantom phone call at the G7 guy. Yep. But that's what makes it so utterly impossible to predict what's going to happen next. He says we won't be back there in three weeks' time. The That's market's why I, all over the I place. I keep going back to this question. You, you have to be thinking about two things, and I believe everyone's been thinking about it through the last week and into next week. Is this a correction in the context of a massive move through 2019, yields lower, very defensive, oh. big momentum trades in defensive assets, utes, real estate, consumer staples, or is this the beginning of a reflation trade, a new trend after the growth scare of 2011-2012, 15-16? Is this the 18-19th growth scare coming to an end? And is this something you want to put a lot of weight behind? Sarah Ponzek dropping by the studio to weigh in. Sarah, you've done a fantastic job for Bloomberg News and Bloomberg TV over the last week on covering this story. It is feeling so quiet. You look at the equity benchmark again today, the S&P 500 unchanged. But beneath the surface, there's just these massive moves still. Absolutely. I mean, this week has undoubtedly been one of the biggest and probably one of the busiest weeks easily of the year of 2019, because you have just seen this massive unwind in pretty much everything that was working all year long. So if you talk about the factor names, if you talk about value versus momentum or versus growth, I mean, you are seeing the strongest unwinds of the cycle in a decade since 2009. But what it really comes down to is the fact that over the past year, if you think about about it, you look at the equity market's performance over the past 12 months, the industries, the sectors that have actually really been leading higher were the defensive ones. It was real estate. It was utilities. It was staples. So those names essentially became your momentum names and many hedge funds were piling in. So now you hear momentum, you hear the momentum and it is unwinding, but that what essentially means is this defensive trade is really unwinding. And the question is, does it have more momentum? Right. Well, 
that's the question here. And it's very difficult to know how long this is going on for because implicit in your belief of whether or not this unwind is going to have more momentum is your belief of where rates are going from here and where the economy is going from here. So if you believe that, yes, we have seen a backup in yields, but this was just an anomaly that we are going to see it revert lower, lower for longer once again, then you would imagine that you would see this flip again. You would see these defensive names start to take over once again as they have over the past 12 months. But now people are really starting to question, did we take this a bit too far? Sure, the yield curve's inverted, but many people arguing the bond market doesn't tell the same signal as it used to. And as John mentioned, I mean, you look at the economic data and it really just has been consistent. The manufacturing sector only makes up about 10% of U.S. GDP. So if you're thinking about whether or not the manufacturing sector is going to bleed over into other areas of the economy, sure, it could potentially happen, but we just haven't seen it happen yet. This all started for me going into October. Through much of 2019, we had this positive correlation between bonds and stocks. Bond yields lower, equities higher, treasuries advance, the equity market rips. That was the story through most of the year so far. And if you believed that we were going to have this second half growth story, what we really should have seen was a negative correlation start to establish itself. Yields start to inflect higher equity markets carry on ripping bonds lower. Then we went into August, and that's exactly what happened. A negative correlation did establish itself, but it just wasn't (laughs) favorable for risk assets. So yields go aggressively lower. People are worried about growth. People are scared. Equities start to drop away. And that's where this all starts to click in. That's where it all starts to click in. Then we get through August and you go into September. And the warning flag for this came last week, where I think we all stepped back and said, this equity market rally feels a little bit different. Treasury yields are climbing. The 30 years starting to break out. And as soon as that continued, that just underpinned this vicious rotation. So, you know, I'm a firm believer, Guy, that the roots for this, the catalyst for it, is firmly in the bond market. And what fixed income investors need to try and get their head around is just how sustainable the move we've seen is over the last few weeks. Because it's been quick, it's been fast, and it's been in a really short period of time. And a lot of people have been caught wrong-footed. But, and I think but, we'll all step back and then try and re-establish how sustainable is it. But August still stands sticks out to me like a sore thumb. August August was just felt wrong. Yes. And we talked uh, and we had this conversation at the time. It was a low liquidity environment. A lot of people weren't there. The the, the delta, the rate of change was just unbelievable. Um, and and it just felt kind of out of kilter with everything else. The market now feels much more like it's back into kind of where you would expect it to be, given the data, given the set, the Fed backdrop. It, it feels like a kind of more comprehensible, a more comprehensible market at the moment. Um, we'll see where it goes next. This is the cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable, live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. Alongside Guy Johnson, I'm Jonathan Farrow. It's just pulling up a chart of gold, heading for its biggest weekly loss since April, down a little more than 1%. The long end of the Treasury curve, the TLT, to track the 20-year Treasury bonds in the United States in an ETF, down 6%. On the week, the biggest weekly loss since November 2016. Gold feels like it could have a little bit further to go here, though. 
Yeah, I, it has been the proxy for what's happening in the bond market, completely unrelated to foreign exchange, uh, believe it or not, because that's not been a story since the day of time, I guess. The story really being the bond market yields go lower, the opportunity cost of holding gold totally diminishes, and, and then yields inflect hard, they rip, and that argument gets destroyed, I also, guess. It's also been this kind of fear. I the, the fear narrative got way overplayed, and that just feeds into the hands of the gold bugs. I, here is a safe asset. And yes, I, the, the, you're absolutely right, John, on the, um, the the opportunity cost of holding gold, and that definitely changes. But gold just kind of, everybody was just like, you've got to have a lot of gold. You've got to have a lot of gold. Like, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. You've got to have gold. Uh, and people certainly bought in on that. People did buy in on it, and you saw it in the price action. But over on the desk, we were talking with a portfolio manager over at Federated Investors uh, this morning, and I thought what he said really plays into this. He said we may have hit peak recession fear last month, and that really ties into this whole conversation and rotation that we've been seeing because, yes, you see bonds selling off in a big way. You have gold really having a rough week. Within the equity market, you see the complete opposite of what we have been seeing lately. I mean, banks really doing well this week. You have materials, industrials, all these really cyclical areas of the market. And one area that I've really found interesting has just been energy because if you look at the dislocation this week between oil prices and energy stocks, I mean, it's huge. Typically, they trade together. But this week, when you look at the oil front, you've had so much news on the supply front as it relates to Iran. But energy has just been one of the most beaten up stocks, the, one of those value areas. Right. The IEA comments on, on the kind of massive glut really, I think, kind of encapsulate the energy story right now. I was in Russia yesterday, and they I, the, the feed-through from the trade war into lower oil prices into this kind of extreme supply-side story at the moment is they're feeling it really, really hard right now. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And I mean, you look at oil prices this week down almost 3%, yet energy stocks are up more than 3%. I mean, that's typically not something you see. But energy stocks got really beaten up, didn't they? I'm I, Way in excess of anything else. Right. And particularly the onshore, the onshore energy suppliers. Well, that's exactly why you're seeing this reversal this week. And when you think about value names, you think about these names that have gotten beaten up so much. I mean, energy is a very, very large part of that. So you're seeing that reversal come into play. Within high yield, if you tap into the high yield index in the United States, it is the only sector, the only industry that is wider than where we started the year and not tighter. Energy is really underperformed uh, across the board here. And I just wonder whether we can get sustainably higher oil prices. And Guy, perhaps this really goes to show that that rotation you see in the equity market, that the extent to which fundamentals underpin it, I'm not quite so sure. It's amazing that energy can perform so well this week in the equity market at the time that the commodity market really isn't doing well at all. You know, at the start of the year, Morgan Stanley were quite clear to point out, I thought we brought it up on the show, I think we did last week, that the missing elements from the equity market running were two things. They pick up in a commodity market and a pick up in longer dated yields. We've got one, but not both. And actually, I'd love mm-hmm. to ask Morgan Stanley about that pretty soon, um, because the commodity markets are not participating if the growth scare is truly over. I think, I think energy, I can't remember how much energy makes up though, of the US markets. Like it's a decent chunk, but it's not... In the S and P, it's only four and a half percent. Yeah, it's not a big. It's not a big. I, banks obviously is a is is a big factor here. If you get the banking sector picking up, 
um, if the curve starts to steepen up a little bit, that's going to be something that is going to be very positive for equities. But the, just the bell sort of uh, the, the the bell curve, sorry, here, the, just the kind of the two tails, kind of with with bond proxies at one and the value at the other, which is so extreme. Any kind of snapback is going to have a, have a big effect. Um, we'll carry on the conversation. We'll look at what next week is going to bring. That's next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You are listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio in the London area. Um, let's just update you on where we are with financial markets. So when I, when I came into work this morning, kind of reading in on the train, there's a lot of chat about the fact that the US equity markets were very close to record highs. Seems we're struggling, though, to get towards those record highs uh, as we work our way through the session. Uh, we are absolutely flat at this point. So the S&P is currently trading at 3,009 points. Absolutely flat. Dipping in and out of positive and negative territory. Really searching for a sense of direction. Will that sense of direction come next week? Let's talk about what next week is going to bring. There's some fairly major heavyweight events coming up in the near term. Sunday night, we get Chinese industrial production and retail sales. Both of those two figures are going to be fascinating to get an idea of what impact, A, the trade narrative is having at the moment, the trade war is having, and B, whether or not some of the uh, the policy that's been delivered of late by the Chinese authorities is having an effect at this stage. Tuesday, industrial production. We're going to see the data recommencing out of the United States ahead of, well, the main event, the Fed decision and Chairman Powell's news conference. We're going to get the dot plot. We're going to get an update uh, on economic projections. We're going to get a whole load of stuff, and the market's going to spend an awful lot of time digesting all of that, particularly after we've seen this huge backup in yields uh, over the last couple of weeks. Um, Overnight into Thursday, we get a rate decision from the Bank of Japan as well. We've also got the Bank of England on deck next week. Potentially, this could be the uh, the final rate decision before we get Brexit. Uh, this is the last scheduled decision before October the 31st. Whether or not Brexit actually happens on October the 31st, we will wait and see. So an awful lot happening next week. And this comes in the context, as we've already been discussing, uh, of this very big backup in yields, which has been ripping kind of all the way across a whole series uh, of asset classes, particularly equities with this kind of big rotation that's been happening away from some of the bond proxies. Um, but the data are generally pretty good and certainly highlight an economy in the United States that doesn't look like it's having too many problems right now outside of the manufacturing sector. Sarah Ponzek is still with us. Sarah, do you think we... Is, is, is the Fed going to provide a shock? Is the Fed going to provide more momentum, more ammunition for this move that we're seeing in yields right now? So... Part of the reason we are seeing this move in yields, and we have seen, if you look at Fed funds futures, start to unwind the very aggressive easing uh, that it was expecting from the Fed. I mean, still expecting a 25 basis point cut next week, still expecting 50 basis points by the end of the year, but not quite as much if you look at the specifics, the very, very specific numbers. So part of this backup in yields has come to have something to do, obviously, with expectations for the Fed, what the Fed's going to do and what that also means for growth rates and inflation there on out. Now, the question is, what does the Fed obviously do. So the Fed is really stuck in a rock and a hard place. It's difficult because on the one end, I mean, you take core inflation metrics, which came in in the U.S. this week, the highest of the cycle since 2008. On the other end, now you also have U.S. and China talking about a potential interim 
trade deal. Now, there's been some conflicting headlines about that. Who knows if that's actually a true or going to follow through and take place. But it's difficult for the Fed to come out and say that they are going to be easing aggressively if, on the one hand, you do have signs of inflation starting to pick up. And it also seems like potentially you see some easing on the trade front. So, it's difficult to imagine a world yeah. in which the Fed's going to cut 50 basis points and say they're going to continue cutting even further next year here on out. Yeah, you could have a situation next week where the S&P hits a fresh record high mm-hmm. and the Fed cuts rates. Absolutely. That just feels wrong. It does. But interestingly enough, there's a lot of historical uh, perspective for it. So I believe the number is 12 times, a dozen times since Greenspan. We've actually seen the Fed cut rates with the S&P within 2% of its all-time highs. So there is historical precedent. It feels extremely wrong. I mean, if you think about the stock market, no, the stock market's not the economy, but you think of it as a barometer for how companies, uh, for how people are doing in the world, the economy is doing in the United States, and it looks like it is doing absolutely just fine. Yet the Fed is going to cut rates. I mean, I I don't think the stock market at all-time highs in any way hinders a rate cut next week. I mean, if the Fed didn't cut rates, there would be a huge uh, blow-up. There would be a temper tantrum, I believe, uh, that we would see it next week. Um, But yeah, there's actually, interestingly enough, historical precedent for rate cuts with the stock market near record highs. What do you think about the ECB relative to the Fed? Do you so, think the fact that the ECB did – do you think the Fed is going to change its behavior as a result of what, what Draghi just did? I do think that what just happened with the ECB puts more pressure on the Fed. I mean, heading into the ECB meeting – Hardly anyone actually thought that the ECB was going to be able to outdove the market. Expectations were so unbelievably high, and they delivered. Um, and if you think about central banks and monetary policy relative to one another, and you can also think of uh, one specific person in the White House in the United States putting pressure um, on the central bank, of course, they're going to try to make it seem like they have no political influence on them whatsoever. Um But you can't think about the Federal Reserve in isolation. You do have to think about where they set policy relative to the rest of the world and central banks around the world as well. So after the ECB came through and did deliver, you would imagine um, that that could potentially put more pressure on the Fed and on Jerome Powell. In terms of of what happens next... I, the Fed feels kind of baked in at the moment. So I'm, right. I, I, know, I know the Fed's the main event next week, but I'm kind of curious your take on this very briefly. If the Fed just delivers what the market is expecting, what then? Well, the question is what the Fed says about what then. Okay, you're going to get this 25 basis point rate cut, but what then? Are they still going to be talking about acting as appropriate to sustain the expansion? Are they still going to be talking about external geographic risks like the trade war? Or are they going to start to say that they're seeing a bit of a tick higher in inflation, that they're seeing risks recede, and that means that policy, that uh, path that we're expecting could change going forwards? Sarah Ponzek, as ever, thank you very much indeed for your time here on The Cable. Uh, Bloomberg Sarah Ponzek joining John and I. Uh, Let's just wrap things up with a quick look at where we are with the S&P remaining where it has done throughout most of the session, just north of 3,000. This is The Cable. This is Bloomberg. Have a great weekend.